Well, I don't know how you think about life, but habits can be really a blessing. I mean, there's a lot of that we do in life that we don't really even have to think about. There's a lot of things in the foreground or in the background that that we do without even thinking about it. There's some things, though, in the foreground that we do think about. So we might look at our calendars and we might say, well, this week I have an appointment with this person, and so I start to think ahead, what things need do I need to address with that person, or what things do I need to talk about and be ready to hear and receive, and so you're, there's things that are in the foreground of our thoughts that we deal with, but there's a lot in the background that just goes to autopilot. Um, think about it, when was the last time you thought which leg to put into your, pan, into your pants? I, I if I thought about it right now, I probably wouldn't even be able to tell you. How about brushing your teeth? Do you start with the back molars first? Or do you go with the, do you brush your teeth? Do you go with the front ones? Do you go up and down? You just, isn't it a blessing that you don't have to think about that? You could actually burn your brain out thinking through every little thing that you had to do. Actually, autopilot and habit is a gift from God to us as human beings. But habit can be dangerous because if we're not careful, things that become routine or regular parts of our worship can become habitual and something we don't give great consideration and thought for. And so it's really important for us from time to time to slow down for a minute and intentionally think through the Lord's Supper or the act of communion that we're about ready to participate in this morning. And so to help our thinking, it's important for us to ask two questions, and I'm hoping that you did take a bulletin this morning because um, I may not get to every aspect this morning for sake of time, but I want us to slow down and ask two questions. First is, what is the meaning of the Lord's table? And secondly, how should it be observed How should we prepare ourselves to participate in it? So this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord's help for understanding of, and you're going to need your Bible here. I didn't put verse text on the wall. You're going to need to open your Bible and kind of follow along with me to some passages that I will turn to. And I'll encourage you to have, have those out and available for this morning. But let's pray. Gracious God, meet with us here this morning. Help us to mentally engage with the presence and your presence that is here. These emblems are not in themselves things that replace you, but they talk about you. And as we think about them, may we be aware of your presence. And may that challenge our hearts to love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are several words that are used to describe the table. Um, Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And sometimes we talk about it as communion or communing. 
But it was the Lord Jesus who instituted this, this ordinance. It's, the word ordinance is a word that means liturgy. It means a, it means a pattern, a, a rite, something that we, we do to honor him. He instituted two of these, actually. This table and also the ordinance of baptism. That's it. But baptism is something that is intended to be observed once in somebody's lifetime. And it's a sign of the beginning. The sign of the beginning of his or her Christian's life. That they're now in relationship with God. It's a picture. But the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that's to be observed repeatedly throughout the life of a believer. It's a sign of that continuing fellowship with God. And so we remember the night in which Christ was betrayed. All of the disciples were reclining at table with with Jesus in that upper Room And it wasn't the evening, it was the supper hour, if you will. So it gets this idea of being the Lord's Supper at that time of the evening. The disciples at that time were blindly aware that Jesus was going to be leaving them. That Jesus was going to die. That Jesus was going to be taken away. It was looming right before them and they had been talking a lot with Jesus about the kingdom of God and some of that kingdom of God talk colored their thinking. How can Jesus be talking about going away and leaving us? They're blindly aware that something's going to happen. It was going to be different after the cross. The kingdom of God was going to look differently. Because the king wasn't going to be there. The king was going to be mediated. He was going to be given to us through the Holy Spirit. It was going to move into a spiritual dimension, anticipating a future physical manifestation. And so as they ate, and they, they ate that bread, and they, they drank the fruit of the vine. It was a Passover meal celebration. And they heard these words from Jesus, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so Jesus instituted this supper. And he hints that the eating of bread and the drinking of juice will take place in the Father's kingdom as well. And that's a very significant statement. Jesus is telling them that the next time that they get together, they will be in the very presence of God together in the kingdom. Now, eating together is a very important thing. I know it's not possible for everybody to eat together every single meal during the week. I know that in my household, getting all the kids at the table at one time can be quite a significant achievement. And I can't imagine how it is for other people. But I remember how special it was to sit at my grandfather's table 
and have family dinners with him. It wasn't so much the food as it was with being with my papa. It was spending and hearing him talk and and understanding his heart. His presence there at the table made all the difference. And in some ways, we're hungering for that presence to return. You know, the presence of God has been something that we have hungered for as people. In fact, there was a time back in the very beginning, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In the very beginning, the presence of God was experienced in a garden. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve at one time heard the voice of God speaking with them, and then they, they violated his commandments and became sinners. And they had to be removed from the presence of God in chapter 3. And when this fellowship with God was lost in the garden, there's a heavy emphasis upon the desire to to have the presence of God again. As the story of the Bible unfolds at a later century, the people of God were encamped around Mount Sinai. And Jesus had, or excuse me, God the Father had delivered them out of Egypt, and now they were around a mountain. And God called the leaders of Israel up into the mountain to meet with God. And the most shocking thing occurs at that meeting. Because when we think of the Ten Commandments and we think about the holiness of God, we think of barriers, right? Something very unique happens. And I want you to look with me in Exodus 24. And we're going to read these verses. In Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. It says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God and ate and drank with him. That just blows my mind. That God allowed these human beings to sit in his presence and to eat and to drink with him. How marvelous, how, how, how astonishing. This theme of being in the presence of God and eating with God continues. And the Israelites, when they entered into the land of Canaan, they were instructed to, to bring the tithe with them from the land. And they were going to meet together in the land that God was giving to them. And they were going to eat and they were going to drink in the presence of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, please. Verse 14. 
14 and verse 23. We can read verse 22 as well. I'm going to blend a few of these verses together, so, so listen carefully as we transition between them. Verse 22, he says, And you shall tithe all the year of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name there dwell, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and of your firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name, then you shall turn it into money and bind up that money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And in verse 26, he says, And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Did you catch that last phrase? There's going to be a, in this new place, in this new promised land, they're going to take and they're going to celebrate and eat in the very presence of God. Now we know this to be the temple in time, Jerusalem. But they were going to be in the presence of God eating and drinking. Now the Old Testament meals were a partial restoration of the fellowship with God that Adam and Eve lost. And there are hints of a coming greater fellowship, which is so much better. And so when we read about the elders and the, the, being in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, we, we, we see that God didn't lay his hand on them. Instinctively, we know that we're sinful, and if we're entering into the presence of God, we can't live. Our God is a consuming fire. But yet God desires to have his presence with us. And so he's covering over. He's not laying his hand on them, even though he's, he's with them. And so this all anticipates the coming day in which our sins will be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can enter into the presence of God. The consuming fire of Mount Sinai is abated because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have freedom to go before His throne of grace because we are now His people. And so we come together here as the church. It's, it's not the elements here that contain the presence of God. It's because of Christ dwelling within us that the presence of God is here. The food on the table is accessories to the presence of God. They picture for us the presence of God. So Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a future sense 
in which when the kingdom of God comes and Christ returns, we will see him face to face. And we will eat with him physically. But there is also a sense in which when we gather as the people of God, as Christians, around this table we are meeting with Jesus. We're meeting with God. And the presence of God is here. We are told most explicitly in the last book of the New Testament, in Revelation 19, verse 9, in which there is a coming marriage supper where everything that we do here will find actualization. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This gathering around this table is prelude But yet there's actual truth that God is here with us in this moment. So what is the the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Very quickly going to enumerate seven of these. When we meet here, we're reminded and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think at times when we gather around the table, we have such a clinical approach to the table. We we pre-cut the bread. We pour the cups out. But in the early days, this is not the way it was done. They had to break by hand pieces off of the loaf. And they poured out of the common cup. And I think there's something lost in this. Because with every breaking of bread, there's a sense in which it shows us that our sin has broken his body. His body was broken for us. And the active participation of breaking that bread off and chewing it and ingesting it is sometimes lost in the picture. The scripture says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. It was because of our sin he was crucified. He was broken. But every time we gather together, the benefits of Christ's death are demonstrated. The benefits. There is freedom here. There's invitation. Matthew 26, 26 says, take, eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. It's an open invitation. There's benefit for us. And when each one of us, by the action of taking this invitation... We're demonstrating that we're taking the benefits of Christ's death unto ourselves. And through his death, he gives us eternal life. Not that when we take this right now, we're now getting more eternal life. That's not the point. 
but we're demonstrating that we're aware of the benefits that are ours because of his death. There's nourishment that is potential here as well. In John chapter 6, verse 53 to 57, is potentially disturbing words of Jesus. In John 6, 53 to 57, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So this is metaphorical. Jesus is saying, just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so, in a sense, when you take Christ into you, you are getting spiritual nourishment. You have eternal life and Eternal life doesn't die. It replenishes. It continues to give us um, energy. And so when we participate in the table, it's an opportunity to renew our understanding of what is ours in Christ Jesus. We can have refreshment. We can come to the Lord at the table. We can do it at any time. But at the time when we do a table observance... We can renew our heart's love for the Lord verbally with him. There's something else that happens here. There's the unity of believers is visualized here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul said, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we have a bread that we share in common. But this is intended to be a sign of our unity with one another. We sit around the table of the king. We're at his table. We're not at my table. We're at his table. And all are welcome at his table. We're all adopted children. We were all orphans. And we all have a father who loves us and cares for us and gave himself for us through the Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What child wouldn't blossom in that kind of love? Christ's love is affirmed through this. It is Christ who invites us to participate. It's, it's his invitation. He loves us. He's the shepherd who cares for our souls. There are blessings that are described in this, and they're reserved for me. So when the Lord invites me to his table, it's an indication of his intention to bring me into the greater table, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That place has been reserved for me, so participation in this is a reminder of the promises of God. And I think our faith in Christ is affirmed. As we take this... We're proclaiming that I, I need Jesus. I trust Jesus. He's the one who forgave all my sin. 
He gave me life and he gave health to my soul. And it is only by his broken body and shed blood that I am saved. It is a testimony of faith. This is what it's speaking to. So, how do we observe it this morning? Well, there are really only two requirements for participation in the Lord's table. First, only those who are part of Christ should participate. Now, that may seem like just an obvious point to you. And if you've come here this morning and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're welcome and you're free to participate in the communion which is yours in Christ. But the obvious part may create problems for others. Because if you're not, an, if you're not a believer, you ought to consider abstaining from participation because if you've not placed your faith in Christ, you're not inside of that family. And you are the only one who has the ability to see that inside your heart. And to reach out and take the bread and the cup is actually to say that you are a believer. And if you're not a believer, then you should pass. Don't worry about people around you. Only only worry and think in your heart about a God who would want you to have relationship with Him. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you too will be saved. A heart of faith and a heart of prayer brings liberty and freedom. Just as All of my children are free to go into my fridge at any time because they're my children. There is a freedom that comes when you are in the family of God. It comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so to confess Jesus is Lord means that you are admitting that you have been outside of relationship with him that you've been a rebel at heart wanting to go your own way. And it's been your sin which has blinded your eyes and it separates you from being a part of the family of God. And to confess Jesus as Lord is not simply to say that he's a supreme being. It's to say that you do not wish to be outside of the family anymore. That you don't want to rebel. You want to sit at his table and be forgiven of all your sins. So only those who are part of Christ, inside of the family of God, ought to participate. And secondly, only those who are willing to undergo self-examination should participate. 1 Corinthians 11. Let's turn there. This is our last text this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Verse 29 talks about the possibility of taking the bread and cup in an unworthy manner as Christians in the family of God. In verse 29 it says, 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body means considering this church body and not seeing this body and the unity of this body as being the unity of Christ's own body. That verse was written to a church that was dysfunctional. They failed to grasp all of what they ought to be in Christ. And as a church, they were creating factions and making splits. They thought maybe they were spiritual, but their actions were showing that they weren't spiritual. People were only eating with people of their own ethnicity. People were eating with only with people who are of the same social and economic integrity as them. In fact, in the first century, the church would usually meet in a wealthy person's home because a wealthy person would usually have a large courtyard that the congregation could meet in and hear the word taught and then to share the meal together. And some, rather than feasting with the others, they were pulling themselves away into another room, and that's where the influential people were. And in their actions, they were demonstrating that they were not a part of the common loaf, that they were somehow elite and special, and they didn't need to mingle with others. And if we're not careful, we can be guilty along these lines. It's important for us to undergo examination to see whether or not we only gather with certain people. Do we, do we only fellowship with those whom we like to have fellowship with? Do we only associate with people who share common educational backgrounds? Do we only share our fellowship with people who have business associations? Or perhaps there's bitterness that has developed in your heart and you can't communicate with some people. In that case, we ought to be very concerned. Very concerned. Because if in our actions we are saying that we are not a part of the common loaf, our actions may be contributing towards a divisiveness and actually an expression that we are not a part of the loaf. We don't want a false unity. We want a real love, forgiving unity. See, Jesus' words apply here, and we need to have the wisdom to hear them. Jesus says we might have to take some very bold and courageous steps to overcome the reality in Matthew five twenty three to 24, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you have a brother that has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's hard. That is really hard. And so, the observation of the Lord's table has requirements. 
we have to first see whether or not we are in the family of God. And even if we may be in the family of God, we need to be thinking carefully that we're not... how How is our life functioning? We have to have the courage to examine our own hearts to see if we have the humble and repentant attitude that Christ requires of us. We have to examine our hearts to see if there are idols that we're hanging on to and do we have a stronger love for the world or is there something that's causing us to walk away from Christ? Do we love man's approval more or do we love the Lord's? And it's so important that we take the time to evaluate our hearts. Let's take some time to examine ourselves this morning. I'm going to ask Drew if he would come. And even as we sing, may we be preparing our hearts and examining our hearts.